Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Andy Smith, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thanks for coming out. My pleasure. Good to see you. Great to see you. I, I guess we should start with how we know each other. Yes. I was 13. Yeah, 13, 14. 1982, the okay. fall of 82. I went from Hanover County Public Schools to St. Christopher's Middle School. Probably something of a culture shock. It was very much of a culture shock. I think so. Yeah, and uh, you were my English teacher. Mm-hmm. And you ended up being my basketball coach as well for the winter. Right, which was really scary because they said, so Smith, coach eighth grade basketball. And I said, really? Knowing nothing about it at all. Really? You'd never played? Uh, I had played infrequently and poorly. And from a coaching perspective, no background whatsoever. None. You can be a good basketball coach without being a great or even good basketball player, but you, should, you usually you have a lot of experience if you're right. going to be good at anything. Right. Yeah. I didn't have any. But we were pretty good. Yes, you were. Yeah, my recollection is we had a good team. You had a good team. And you were, and you were part of that team. Yeah. Well, you guys were good. I don't. Who else was on that team? Do you, you do you remember? You coached for what? Four years? You were telling yeah, me just the other four day. Four years. I, I to be honest with you at this point, no. I what I will tell you, Paul, is that I spent a lot of time with a man you remember, and that's Carl Koenig. And I said, Carl, eighth grade. I have no idea what I'm doing. What are the three things I need to make sure of? And Carl went through the three things, and it was it was fine. <laughs> that's great. And so I did everything off of that. Carl was a bit of a legend as the varsity basketball coach, I think right? I think Carl Carl was a legend as a basketball coach, and he was a legend as a seventh-grade history teacher. Not so much for the history, just who he was, right? how, how, how he interacted with the boys. All, those were the legendary things. Yeah, he, he, uh, he had a fantastic reputation there, and, and he coached me my junior year. And, there you uh, go. Yeah, it was uh, – I have fond memories of, of, of those years. All right, so I don't know where you grew up. Where did you grow up? Uh, Lower East Side of Manhattan, ah. and uh, went away to college in Baltimore, and never really went back. Okay, never went back. What is there a reason you never went back? Uh, yes. So uh, I was at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, and I went home freshman year during Christmas vacation. It was really the first time I'd been back, and in those days you didn't drive. You either took the Greyhound bus or you rode the train. I rode the train. So I rode the train back and uh, got into uh, Penn Station uh, from whence I got a subway and then a bus to get home at different times. Right. And as I was going through the streets of New York, I was looking up at the canyons of glass, steel, and stone. And uh, I, I said, wait a minute, what? Because I'd been away from it for three or four months. And I realized that while it was great to grow up in New York City, it really was, I was now ready for something different and really didn't want this again. Hmm. So I never lived in New York uh, really after high school because even in college I was I was home very rarely. Wow. Uh, so it just wasn't for you, the skyscrapers yeah, and, the, and the hustle the, and bustle? Was... The hustle, bustle, the the crush of people, the whole visual, I, I call them canyons. Manhattan in particular, the other boroughs, not necessarily as much. But Manhattan is is, is canyon after canyon after canyon of skyscraper. And I, I just wanted something different. Yeah. 
You wanted something more natural. I wanted something where I felt like I could breathe. Mm. Yeah. Did you get that in Baltimore? I did. Baltimore was great. That was a great four years. And then I went to get a master's at UNC Chapel Hill. And I did that in a year because I was tired of school. And they said, if you pay for the courses and double up, you can do it in a year, which I did. And and then after that, in the fall of 1974, I ended up in Richmond. And, and the story is actually pretty concise. In those days, there were no teacher placement agencies. They didn't exist yet. Uh, and you typed out your introduction letter and your resume and you used carbon paper to make copies oh. <laughs> and then then you took your two-page letter resume folded it up put it in an envelope slapped a stamp on it sent it to a school oh. that that's how it worked and i sent letters to somewhere between 50 and 60 private schools mostly eastern seaboard a couple in the midwest that i knew about El Zippo. Nothing. Nothing. Uh, I did have an offer to teach in a public middle school in Granville, Ohio, which is the home of Denison University. Okay. And that's not a coincidence. The director of the summer camp I worked at was also the head lacrosse coach at Denison. He knew a lot of people and was well-connected. And then all of a sudden in May, uh, got a call from St. Christopher's because they had had a teacher who had decided unexpectedly not to return. Hmm. And in the private school trade, if you're in May and you have an open position, that's still today, is considered a problem. Hmm. So they were scrambling, and and quite frankly, they just needed a body. Right. Okay. What year was this? This was was May 1974. Okay. All right, so you grew up in in Manhattan in the 50s and 60s. Yes. Uh, Can you describe what that was like? Especially the 60s. So uh, the 50s and 60s were a time, uh, it was actually a very dangerous city. And there were rules for safety. And if you violated any of the rules and you got hurt, it was like, well, that's your fault. Yeah. Um, I rode the, the crosstown bus and the subway to school and then home from school every day. It was 45 minutes each way. And when you were on public transportation, you had to pay attention to the rules. Right. And when you were walking the streets, you had to pay attention to the rules. And I got robbed several times. Thankfully, no physical damage, but um, crowds of teenagers who would steal your bus pass because they could use it for money. Or they, they'd take what little money that you had. So it, it was kind of a crazy place. And if you were roaming around after dark, then you had to be even more careful. I think the big difference was that in the 50s and 60s, um, guns were rare. Mm. Knives, many other weapons of of destruction, but guns were exceedingly rare, at least for my age cohort and my experience. Right. And then as the city moved into the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that changed. Right. did, uh, Did your parents understand how dangerous it could be? Sort of. They weren't traveling like you were. No, so my my father was a was a physician. He had his own practice. He drove himself everywhere in in that area. You could still do that. Uh, and my my mom, who was also a physician, had chosen to stay home to raise the kids. And she was also the business manager for my dad. Mm. So she did all the taxes, all the employment regulations. It was a lot of work. Right. 
But quite frankly, she was not an overly social person. So about the only time she left the apartment was to run errands or to go someplace with my father. Mm. So they sort of understood, but not really because they didn't experience it themselves. Right. And in the, his profession and what your mom was doing, they're not going to hear a lot of stories about no. things going Mm-mm. wrong. No. And, and news media, as you can imagine, was a very different proposition from what it is today. Partly, it wasn't 24-7. Partly, uh, if you turned on the TV, you you had in New York the three major networks. Uh, you had three independent stations common exclusively to the New York area, which was a big deal at the time. Uh, and that was it. Mm. And, and, of course, the whole technology piece, the, it did exist, but not for the public it didn't. Right. And so, so the spread of stories was very, very different. The other thing I'd mention, because I think it is relevant for, for, for me, because I spent most of my career actually as a history teacher, the English, I did that for two years. I, I caught one of your two years. Yeah. You caught one of, <laughs> sorry for you. Uh, I, I thought I was pretty good at teaching guys how to write, but when it came to poetry, I was hopeless. I don't remember any poetry in your class. There's probably a reason that you don't remember any poetry, and that's a good thing. Uh, As you're taking a sip, I should mention that uh, we're getting together because I read recently that you're retiring. Yes, sir. Uh, And then we uh, reconnected, and uh, you're retiring after 48 years of teaching. That is accurate. And and you've taught at the 8th through 12th grade level. Did you... Go outside of that at any point? No, I, I, I have done other kinds of work with with middle school boys. So six, I would say six through 12 in the overall, but in terms of the classroom experience, eight through 12. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and you, you sort of went from eighth up into the upper school. So I went from being an eighth grade teacher and coach to being principal of the middle school. Uh-huh. And I did that for 18 years. And then I was looking for something different, and I reached an agreement with the school such that I was entitled uh, the director of special projects. Exactly. (laughs) You're right to laugh. Which meant, okay, we've got something we've got to do. Nobody else wants to do it. Smith, you're up. Right. Uh, And I was teaching some upper school history. And then in 08, um, the gentleman who had been teaching AP US history and who was the chairman of the history department in the upper school retired. Mm. And at that point, uh, Tony Simandera, your former baseball coach, right. asked me to take over both of those positions. Okay. Yeah, Tony's a fantastic guy. Yeah, yeah he's a really good egg. He's been there uh, quite a while himself. He has. Uh, Tony's first year, I think, was 1987. 86, 87, yep. And uh, your math skills are better than mine, so I'll, I'll let you figure that one out. Yeah, he's been there 35? Probably 35 years. Yeah. yeah. It's a long time. It's a long time. Yeah, he, he came my senior year. Okay. My last year, which is gotcha. why I knew 86, 87. Yeah, all right, so let's go back. You, you mentioned Johns Hopkins. Why Johns Hopkins? Why did you want to go there? So um, typical New York City snobbery, I was looking to go to college in a small town. People in Baltimore would probably not agree with my characterization, but I kept that well, to myself. It's not, it's not New York. Right. It's not New York. Um, in doing the, the interviews, uh, I found that my interview at Hopkins was far and away the most, um, uh, was, was the most welcoming. 
The other places I interviewed, they, they were they were pretty pro forma. And some of some of those places I got into and some of them I didn't. But I thought the interviewer I worked with at Hopkins was great. I walked the campus and really liked it, which was important to me. And then thirdly, and and, and this is this is no kidding, um, I wanted to play soccer in college. And when I looked at the Hopkins program, I was very confident that that's a program that I that I could participate in and not just sit on the bench. Some of the other schools I applied to, you know, maybe I'm good enough, and frankly, maybe I'm not. Right. So. That was actually pretty important to me. So let's back up to your childhood growing up in Manhattan. You played soccer, obviously, in school. Yeah. Uh, what age were you when you started playing? Uh, probably eight or nine. Okay. Uh, but back to the conversation that you and I were having before the mics went on. In those days, soccer and every other sport had a season. Right. You didn't specialize. There was no such thing as specialization. So I played soccer in the fall, and then I did other things the rest of the year. And in my neighborhood, I think there was, I think I had one friend who played soccer and nobody else did. So I only played soccer at school and I only played in the fall. So it wasn't a big sport? No, not at all. Yeah, even for New York. Uh, not, not where I lived in New York. Now, some of the other boroughs and some of the other neighborhoods, huge sport, but not, not where I lived. Right. And huge sport because there was more of an international feel to mm-hmm. those other neighborhoods. Yeah, there were, there were there were populations and there were cultures for which soccer was really important. And so they played a lot, but but mine wasn't one of them. What was it about soccer that attracted you to it? Uh, well, partly my parents told me they would not allow me to play football. Mm. That would have something to do with it. But partly, uh, and I suspect this would be familiar to you too, you try out a sport and pretty quickly you think, yeah, no, I, either I don't care for this or I might, but I probably don't think I'm going to be very good. And then every now and then you try a sport and you go like, this feels right to me. And, and there's no more logic or rationale to it than that as an eight or nine year old. Sure. You're sure. just going like, yeah, okay. And I never really lost that feeling. Were you high energy as a kid? Uh, only when I thought it was appropriate to be high energy. Okay. I was very selective about that. Some of my school teachers would tell you that I should have been high energy more often than I chose to be. Okay. Wow. But you, you had a, an appreciation of your energy level and how you were interacting oh, with Oh, absolutely. The world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What and, other- and I didn't experience any success in soccer because I was bigger, stronger, faster, or more skilled. So I better be bringing something else to the table. Right, right, right. Did you play other sports growing up? I did. Um, the only thing that I did besides soccer in an organized fashion, uh, I did run track in high school. I wasn't very good. And then for a number of years, I fenced, which was a, in hmm. those days was a very New York City. That's very New York. That's very New York. And I trained with some of the some of them of the genuine maestros who either were or had been Olympic coaches. Oh wow. And my freshman year at Hopkins I actually fenced and played soccer, mm. which probably wasn't the be- one of the best choices I've ever made. Um, but in the springtime of my freshman year, the fencing coach approached me and he told me point blank, he was a very abrupt fellow. Uh, he said, so you're going to have to choose. And I assume that next winter we'll be seeing you. Hmm. 
And I, as I recall, I looked at him and I said, uh, no, you won't. And I walked away. <laughs> so you chose soccer. Oh, absolutely. That was a no-brainer for me. Soccer seems more fun as a guy who never played or yeah. did, did either. Well, fencing never. is great. And fencing is really challenging. And, and there's act, there are actually some things that I really liked about fencing. But in comparison, no. Well, let's explore fencing a little bit more. I've never talked to anybody ever about fencing, uh, and certainly not on the podcast. And I had no idea that you had a, a fencing background right. of sorts. So t- tell me about fencing. What, what's, so, the, what's the point of it? So so the point, and, and, I, and I appreciate the pun, even though it was unintended. Completely unintended. <laughs> yeah, so the point of fencing is that it is, at its heart, um, a person versus person conflict. Now, you have teams, you, you you score points and so forth. But the bottom line is you get two men or you get two women on what they call a strip or a piste, P-I-S-T-E, and the two of them are using one of three weapons. The one that you're probably familiar with is called the foil, mm-hmm. and, and that is a point and thrust weapon, which is, which is why your pun was great. And it has a very specific target area, which is the chest. If you if you hit your opponent in any other area, you don't score a point. Okay. Uh, another weapon is called the epée, which is still a point and thrust, but the entire body is the target. Mm. So you could you could stick somebody in the foot and you'd get a point. But if you did that when you're fencing foil, you get nothing except dirty looks from your coaches. Right. Uh, or you can actually run on the strip, and as you go past, this is the one thing I liked about the epée. You could you could get the guy in the back as you ran past, and if you got away with it, you know you'd get the point. But but the strip is not very wide. No, it's not very wide. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's it, it becomes for the people who are really good at it. It's really a very elegant dance. Uh, and then the third weapon, and it's the one I ended up in, is saber. Okay. And you can point and thrust. But, but most of it is cut, and some would say slash. Well, slashing. Yeah, my, my, my style was, was sufficiently un, inelegant that slash was much more often the case. Um, and that was the right choice for me. Uh, I didn't have the height for the other two weapons. I didn't, my arms weren't long enough. Mm. I, I, was, I was at a disadvantage always. And, and quite frankly, there weren't as many people in Sabre in the United States at that time. Everybody fenced foil, and if they didn't, they fenced epee. So Sabre had fewer people. And the coaches that I had said, yeah, for at your size and your skill level, this is going to be the best choice for you. How did you uh, discover fencing? I didn't. Um, my, my parents decided that I should fence. Uh. And, and this is a true story. Um, in those days, 50s and 60s, I was very fond of, uh, for example, Errol Flynn mm. and Tyrone Power movies. Uh, I later learned their technique of sword fighting was absolutely <laughs> disgraceful. But as a young boy, I didn't know that it seemed exciting. And I, and like young boys do, I would mimic the movements. From this, my parents deduced that I must want to fence. Ah, ah yes. <laughs> so that was that was an interesting, yeah. It's, it's neat that you had that opportunity. Oh, yeah. No, I have no regrets about doing it. I met some people whom I would not have met otherwise. I also had no regrets about walking away from it. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, fencing was a thing at Johns Hopkins. I'm a little surprised back then. Yeah, it was not. It was not a huge program at Hopkins in those ga- days. Um, Ivy League, huge. Right. 
I'm trying to think of where else. Some of the Midwestern universities, like University of Chicago, um, but it was a it was a pretty regional sport, and and of course today it, you don't turn on ESPN, you don't go to ESPN Plus, and and they just give you surfeits of fencing opportunities, <laughs> but it's a lot less regional than it used to be. Uh, did you enjoy school as a kid? When you were say eight, nine, ten? Yeah, I was I was really happy in school, probably up until the time, up until I was about an eighth or ninth grader, uh, school was great. And then um, I began to wonder, okay, so why am I doing this? Mm. Particularly in the subject areas where I was not as adept. So that would be math and science. And I said, well, okay, I'm, I don't really enjoy this and I'm not all that great. Why am I doing that? Which were perfectly legitimate questions to ask, but, but they weren't great tools for motivation. Right. So in high school, I, I did well in the humanities. I did not do well in math and science. And uh, I am confident that that had plenty to do with the fact that some of the colleges I applied to said, no, thank you. Well, uh, Hopkins is known for its medical school. And it I, is. I would assume their undergrad is fairly math and science oriented, but it's uh, It is, at least in those days, and I think it still is, um, pre-meds, electrical engineering, uh, lab sciences, and so forth. In those days, one of the humanities areas that Hopkins was well known in, though, was history. Mm. So that was a plus in my book. Not as much of a plus as the other things I mentioned to you earlier, but it didn't hurt that they had some very well-known professors in the history department. When did you know you wanted to uh, uh, learn about history in depth in that way? When I was eight. Really? Yes. I asked my parents... Um, this actually came up the other the other evening. Uh, there were some friends over. They were they were checking on me post hip replacement to make sure I hadn't totally fallen apart. Right. And and somebody asked me the the question about well, you know what what's the first book you remember reading that was like a book? And I said well I happen to have it right here. <laughs> John Dos Passos Reflections of a Golden Age, publication date 1959. Okay. Born in 1951, so I'm pretty close on the math there. Right, yeah. And uh, my parents bought me that book at my request, and it was it was a it was a big person book, and I loved. I didn't understand half of it, I'm sure, but I loved reading it. It it's kind of like the soccer. I started to read it, and I said, "Oh yeah, this is going to work." Mm. And I just I just kept going from there. What did you th- want to do with your history degree? Oh, I knew I wanted to be a teacher when I was probably 12. What is it about teaching as a 12-year-old that was attractive to you? Uh, just felt right. Okay. Yeah, I didn't, never, never have delved into any of these decisions all that deeply. If my instinct said, yup, I went with it, and in that arena, my instincts seem to have turned out reasonably well. I will confess that in other arenas of life, my instincts haven't turned out to be so great, to, to the point that in some arenas, if my instincts say, well, you should do A, then I know the next thing I should do is Z, because I'm way off. But in, but in these, you know, these kinds of career choice, what am I interested in, what I want to do, my instincts have, been, have served me well. Yeah. They really have. So not, uh, not 
the kind of person that would apply objective analytics as your first move. It's no, more, I would be I would be hopeless in Major League Baseball today. Thank mm. you very much, <laughs> because I would be one of those old school. The analytics are fine, and I get why they matter. But I would say, well, yeah, but there's a game going on, and it's like people and stuff. It, yeah, and and analytics are great, but at the top of the sixth, when you're sending a guy up to the plate. And you know that he's just lost a family member. Those analytics aren't going to help you at all. Right. They're overwhelmed by that. Yeah. Right. Or 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 the the young man you've got on the mound pitching for you has has been, has been scratching himself under his throwing arm in a way you've never seen before. The analytics say he should be good for at least another twenty five or thirty pitches. Right. But if I'm observing, I'm going like, yeah, you know what? I'm not so sure. Yeah. So mm. I would be that kind of person that would base a decision on that. And not on the analytics. I, I are, do you follow baseball at all? Some, yeah. I you, now, uh, apologies. Uh, I know I will give offense. As a as a young boy in New York in the fifties, when I started to notice that there was baseball, there was only one professional team in town, and it was the Yankees. Sure. The Dodgers and the Giants left for the coast. Right. And the Amazons, the Amazon Mets, were were yet to be hatched. Ah. So, so if, if you think about between 1958 and 1962, the only show in town was the Yankees. They were really good. I said, okay, I'm going to root for them. So I, I still follow baseball, and I still follow the Yankees some. And what is it about baseball that uh, what causes you to follow? Is it about? I, I think just the fact that I've been doing it for a long time. Now, when I was a kid, and, and I actually kind of hesitate to admit this, during spring training... I would listen to Yankees spring training games on the radio. Oh, boy. Because there was no TV broadcast in those days. Okay. Because it's the late 50s, early 60s. I would listen to the Yankee spring training games, and I would actually keep the book. Uh, So you enjoyed keeping the book. I did enjoy keeping the book. I would not enjoy that today. Mm. But as as a kid, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, my favorite players were always guys who weren't superstars, um, but I loved watching them play. And then as I got older, started playing soccer, more introduced to other sports, my, 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 uh, my interest in baseball started to wane some. But you still have some interest. I do, I do have some interest. And you know that it's become very analytical. Oh, I am very well aware of that. So uh, I had a friend ask me my perspective on something, and I'd love to get your perspective on this. Clayton Kershaw, apparently, I, I didn't watch the game. I didn't know about it until my friend asked me this. He, I think he was pitching a perfect game into and through the seventh inning. He had seven perfect innings, mm-hmm. and he was pulled. And he was pulled. What, can you help me understand why he was pulled? I can tell you what the explanation is that has been offered. And then can you then share? And then I'll tell you what I really think. So the explanation that has been offered is that uh, Kershaw is still recovering from a serious injury that's related to the pitching motion. It's early in the season. He needs to be their ace in the playoffs, and if they get that far, the World Series. And while it's great, he's, he's got a perfect game in the seventh. Do you really want to take the chance on his pitching the additional two innings now? And what's that going to cost you in August, September, October? Okay. Now, my response to that would be great argument. 
total nonsense. <laughs> the guy's at the end of his career. He's given you everything he's got, whether you're happy about his playoff performance or not. And I know it's kind of checkered. Right. But he's given you everything he's got. He's nearing the end of his career. It's hard for me to imagine he's not going to be in the Hall of Fame. He has a chance to pitch a perfect game. That he's, he's never had had a perfect game, No, right? well, who? how many pitchers have? Not many. I, I mean, it's even more rare than no hitters. He has an opportunity. And if he gets hurt in April... It's April. He can recover. He can recover. And besides that, doesn't the organization owe him that? You would think. That would be my analysis, but that's the non-analytical analysis. Or actually, I would say, Paul, that's a very analytical analysis, but it's it's analytics that's not based exclusively on statistics. Right. That's my objection to what is called analytics today. It's all driven by statistics. Statistics are a human creation. Why are we kidding ourselves? Right. Yeah, my perspective was um, one outstanding opportunity. Maybe the only time he'll have that opportunity after seven innings to do it. Uh, how amazing would it be for him and and everything that baseball has meant to him and and the Dodgers in particular? And the Dodgers lore. Right. Right. I just it, it feels like they're they're looking at every player as a commodity. And, I I agree. And it, it's it's shameful. And, uh, and and I have heard some people say that he and Sandy Koufax are the two best pitchers the Dodgers have ever had. Now, I don't know the Dodgers well enough to know whether that's really true or not. I know they've had some great pitchers. But he's certainly one of the best pitchers they've ever had. And the truth of the matter is that if you don't respect the individual sufficiently to allow him to try... And I think that says something about your organization that is definitely not appealing to me. I wouldn't want to play for him. And 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 if that means that later on we don't have him for a stretch, yeah. So last time I, I paid attention, the Dodgers are not exactly at the back of the pack in terms of the size of their payroll. Right. They're top two or three, right? Yeah, they, yeah. they go out and spend the money. As a Yankees fan, I can't complain about that <laughs> because then you can say, oh, Giancarlo Stanton... Or, or Alex Rodriguez, and I'm going like, well, yeah, you know, you, you got me there. So I, I just, I don't, I don't buy it because I think the priorities are out of whack. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not treating them like humans. Right. Yeah. I, I would agree with you on that. Yeah, I didn't realize you uh, followed baseball that closely. Well, I don't think of it as that closely because I can't tell you who's currently playing second base for the Padres mm. and is he any good or not and, and what his on-base percentage is. I don't know any of that stuff. But you know more about baseball than I do. And I, I played baseball growing up, and I, don't, uh, I, don't, I can't name three players on my favorite team. Well, that's okay, too. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you, I'm, got, I'm, you, got, you got other things going I'm on. I'm a casual fan. There you go. And, and I think that's very healthy. Absolutely. All right, so let's back up to uh, Johns Hopkins what are your fondest memories of, of going to school there? Uh, first and foremost, playing soccer. And, and we were not great. Um, we were okay. But just the whole experience, the team, the games, of course, the victories, uh, the stinky uniforms, because we got all the castaways. Some of the guys I played with, uh, to me, that's the one part of the college experience that I would not trade for anything else, mm. is the college athletics experience. 
That's the one thing I'd keep. And so in that respect, Hopkins was great. Um, I was lucky enough to join a fraternity that was about more than just being a bunch of cement heads on Friday and Saturday night. Right. And they actually had a service element to them, which was kind of unusual for the era. Now, we had plenty of cement heads. Sure. Don't, don't get me wrong. But there was, there was a core to that fraternity that was about more than that. And I really enjoyed that. Um, I would say those two things in particular. I think the education was fine. I don't think I took advantage of it, certainly the way I could have, and many would say the way I should have, but I'd mark that down to growing pains that were necessary, Right. which is why when I work with kids and somebody is underperforming, I'm not as likely as some to, you know, getting into the screaming, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be? I'm going like, well, yeah, Smith, but remember, you, you were on, you were on, probation with the dean's office at the end of your freshman year in college so you might want to calm down a little bit before you reach a judgment on somebody else yeah and anger and yelling usually doesn't yeah that usually doesn't doesn't do much except maybe in the immediate immediate set in the best case scenario has no lasting effect so um so the the program was fine it's not it's not it's not a commentary on that but it's pretty clear that i didn't do as much with that as I could have. But I would have to tell you, somebody asked me, uh, one of the students from St. Christopher's came over last week to do an interview for the student newspaper. Oh, cool. Right. Another one of my, I like to refer to them as my obituaries, <laughs> just because. That's not what we're doing here. No, I understand that. <laughs> and and I mean it in, in the best possible sense. But but he asked me about, well, how did you, I've heard you know a lot of history. Uh, and I said, well, yeah, probably. So, well, how'd that happen? Which was a great question for him to ask. And, and what I didn't say to him was, well, it wasn't a coursework because I didn't want to throw him a loop. What I said to him instead was, you read and you read and you read and you do that for decades. And over time, there's a layering effect. Mm. And you begin to read on a particular topic for the fourth or fifth or seventh or eighth time. And you go like, oh, yeah, that. Oh, yeah, that. Ooh, I didn't know that. Let's add that into the... Right. And that that's really where a lot of my learning has come from, is is reading, uh, travel, and service. Mm, we'll come back to uh, service. Yeah. And, and uh, we can talk about travel as well. Uh, I'd love to actually talk about the places you've been. Uh, you mentioned you had applied to roughly 60 private schools. Yes. Why private and not a mix of public and private? Uh, because I had gone to a private school. That was what I knew. Mm. And I thought, well, yeah, probably that's what I should do. Now, contrary to that, uh, my senior year at Hopkins, uh, I was required to do student teaching. And I had to do that in order to get a teaching certificate. Because at that point, I said, well, you know, as far as I know, if I'm going to work in any public school in the nation, I got to have a certificate. And although I was going to apply to private schools, I understood you got to be ready to work wherever. So I, I, taught, um, I taught spring semester, senior year, in the city of Baltimore. Mm. Uh, and in those days, they structured their, their program in what they called junior high schools, which was seven, eight, and nine, unlike the six through eight or five through eight middle schools of today. Right. And the class that I drew was ninth grade civics. 
Exactly. You should laugh. <laughs> oh my goodness. Let's find a topic that could be more boring to ninth grade boys and girls than civics. No, this is the most boring. Okay. Well, we're going to have a course in that and you're going to teach it. And to make it even more remarkable, uh, the students were not allowed to take textbooks home because if the textbooks got lost, no one would steal them, by the way, but if they got lost, uh, then the school district would have to replace them and they didn't have any money. Hmm. So civics, ninth grade, no textbooks, which pretty much in those days meant no homework. Wow. Uh, four classes, and they were tracked. Are, are you familiar with that, I'm not. that term? Okay, so that's an old-timey term. That's from the 60s and 70s. And it means that when you track, that means you have an advanced level, you have a regular level, and, and then you have like a basic level or whatever they call it. Nobody's ever come up with a good name in my mind for the kids who were at that bottom level. Yeah. Um, I had two sections of the regular. They were fabulous. Mm. They were they were such great kids. It was a very, for the times, it was a very diverse school population. And they were fabulous. The advanced kids were very bright. And I never had to worry about them doing their assignments. Um, but I can't say that I felt... Uh, any particular connection with them. Mm. They, they were hard to connect with. Mm. And, and then there were the others. And in those days, in Maryland, the state law said that when you reached the age of 16, you could opt to discontinue schooling, and that was your choice. Oh, boy. That's at least the laws I remembered. Somebody may listen to your podcast and go, well, no, wait a minute, no. But that's what I, that's what I was told. Right. Um, so in that ninth grade bottom section, I had a large number of boys and girls who had already repeated a grade. Mm. You start to do the chronology and you realize you got a lot of 15-year-olds in that class who are getting ready to turn 16. And those, those boys aren't planning to go to college. They're going to get into HVAC repair. They're going to do uh, automobile maintenance. They're going to go into construction. And they're going to, get, they're going to make good livings. And on the girls' side, they're not going to college. They're going to cosmetology school or, or whatever else it was at the time that they were thinking. So this is just kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When do I turn 16? Yeah, that was, that was very exciting. But it was still okay. The reason I decided that public school was not for me after that experience was the inordinate number of rules and regulations that you had to follow. Even when it did make sense especially when it didn't make sense. And, and, and Paul, one thing I've never been any good at is obeying because somebody said so. Right. If you can give me a legitimate reason for why, great, happy to do it. In public school, you don't even ask because mm. they're not interested in your asking. Right. And I've never been any good at that. So I looked at that and I said, yeah, I can do this, but I'm going to have an ongoing problem with the bureaucracy and the regulation. So when I, when I went to graduate school the year after that and I started filing the, the, the applications, that, that made it pretty simple for me in terms of what I was looking for. Yeah, and uh, St. Christopher's, I imagine, your perspective is much more powerful than mine. I was a student there for five years, but it felt like St. Christ there were rules, mm. uh, but it felt like it was more, let's be thoughtful, uh, let's be principle-based, um, 
less so of do it because it's that's the rule we've had in place for 25 years and of course we're just going to keep following that rule and and we did and we did and still do have some rules and regulations that are that is our tradition but um, certainly when you were there um, as a teacher uh, I certainly felt that way and then when I took over as principal of the middle school uh, I started out working with my faculty and I said so here's the deal we're only gonna have a few rules and they're only going to be rules that we know we're going to enforce all the time. Because if we're not going to enforce them all the time, there's no point in having them. Yep. I believe in you as a professional, and I trust in your professional judgment. You have to figure out what to do. And when you're not sure, or when something isn't working, that's when you give me a holler and we figure it out together. What we're not going to do is have the manual. Mm. You that sh- you that sh- approach works wonderfully, right? I, I, I believe in it today. But it, but it requires people to be thoughtful about what they're doing and what they choose not to do. In other words, from a teacher perspective, you, in that system, you should not show up every day for work and, and think that you're just going to sort of routinely go through everything you do. Because for me, and this was true in 74 and it's true in, in 2022, school is a people business. If you don't approach it that way, you are not going to give your students the education they deserve. Content is important, but it's not the most important thing. Mm. The people business. If you get that right, then there's all kinds of other stuff you can do. If you don't get that right, I don't care what courses you're teaching, you're, you're, you're missing the boat. Did you feel like as a teacher or even an administrator, you were you could enable learning that made that worked for each individual student? Or was it more segmented? You had maybe three or four segments of students. And- yeah, that's a, that's a great question, um, Paul. I, th- I think we did a great job with a range of students, but I'm, I'm not sure, particularly in the 70s and 80s, I'm not sure that we were doing a great job with all of our students. And, and I think particularly about students, for example, who were dyslexic, mm. which at that point in time was kind of, what, D- what? What does that mean? Right. No, he just needs to work harder. We didn't. We didn't really get it. And then by the '80s, certainly we were dealing with with the whole topic of uh, attention deficit and, and ADHD and so forth. I think we figured some of that out. I think some of it we haven't really figured out. Even now, yeah. But be that as it may, that was relatively new for us, which means there are some guys we missed along the way. I'm not saying we meant to miss them along the way, but of we not, we, yeah. we probably did because we didn't we didn't really understand. Okay, well, what do we need to do differently here? So, a side story on that: by the time I started teaching in 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 the high school, I had learned some things that were different from my time in the '70s, and I had a student in tenth grade world history um, who was the nicest boy, and he he was struggling. To, to get by in my course, I mean, he was really having a hard time, and he wasn't, and he wasn't confrontational, and he wasn't abrasive. I mean, he wasn't any. He's just a nice guy. So I sat down with him after class one day. This was probably October, November, and I said, "Tom, it looks like this really isn't working for you. Tell me about that." And he said, "Well, I really have a hard time dealing with the information." and organizing it for myself in a way that I can look back at it later on mm. 
and be prepared for a quiz or a test or an essay or any of the other things that I'm asking him to do. And I had noticed that in class he, he doodled a lot. But he wasn't, you know, he wasn't off in left field. He just was doodling. So I asked him to show me his notebook, and it was, wow. It, it, was, it, it was a carousel of colors and shapes and everything. So to finish the story, over time, we, we met several times, and he devised a system, craziest thing ever in my experience. He devised a system where he started to take notes in class in a spiral. I've never seen that. And he did it in a spiral because that made sense to him and because it was artistic. Hmm. And he said, okay, well, if I can do art and do the notes at the same time, I think I can handle this. Now, let's be fair. He went from a student who was barely passing to a student who was getting C's. It's okay. improvement. That's improvement. And it was far less stressful for him because he felt like he had some sense of control right. over what he was doing. And unsurprisingly, when he graduated from St. Christopher's, he, he went to college, all right, and he was an art major <laughs> because that's what spoke to him. Right. But that, to me, that's a great example of how sometimes we met the needs of our students and sometimes we didn't. But you, you met them at least part of the way. Or at least some of the time. Or you certainly tried. Yeah. Well, yeah. I would like to think so. But I still have to be realistic and say, I'm sure I had guys where I just, I just whiffed. Mm. Um, on the other hand, there are some there are some guys where yeah no that really worked out and, and he was one of them and I like to tell that story because it's really different. Yeah, I've never heard anything like that. And and when I when I would look at his notes, not to are you taking your notes, but I said Tom, let me see your notes just so I can see what you're doing. And he was happy to show me. It made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> I could not decipher those spirals to save my life. But he could. To some but degree. he could. Yeah. Oh, you know, he could work with those. So when you were teaching back in the mid-70s, what was your approach to teaching? How did you think about it? I thought, and, and this is the advantage of teaching in middle school, I thought, well, first of all, my students don't have to get to chapter 23 in a book necessarily. They've got to have some basic skills that they're going to be required to use in the upper school. They're going to have to know some stuff. Beyond that, I get to do whatever I want. And the, um, the course that I, that I started teaching in eighth grade, eerily, was, in essence, a civics course. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was different from the ninth grade course, but the, but the, the course materials, ugh, I, I found them to just be useless. So I finally found a high school textbook, and I started excerpting stuff out of it. We didn't use the whole textbook. And then I started making up projects. For the kids, because I found middle school kids, well, high school kids too, if the if a project is legitimate, if they can look at it and go like, oh, okay, I understand why you're asking us to do that, they love projects, they love projects, yeah. And so we did a lot of we did a lot of project work. I think the one that I still recall from the eighth grade history course, we'd get to that time period between Thanksgiving and Christmas when no one wants to be in school, right? You remember those oh, days. Yeah. And so that's the time I had the, the students doing individual projects on city and local government. And the kids would bring in the, the, the city manager or council people or somebody from the general assembly. Or, you know, we'd have guest speakers and we'd have Q&A. Oh, they, they loved it. They love all that stuff. Yeah. Now, do they remember any of that today? Probably not. But at least they began to realize, oh, so there's like a local government. And that 
has an impact on my life? Well, okay then. And besides that, we got through the period between Thanksgiving and Christmas, which was important. Yeah, very important. Yeah. So um, it was something of a freelance. But I would say even when I started teaching AP U.S. history in the 2000s, I never taught that course. I never taught that course the same way twice from one year to the next and learned pretty quickly that with multiple sections, I wasn't really teaching the same course to more than one of those sections because I had different kids. Right. Uh, and, and some kids were, were better at writing and some kids were better at having group discussions and some kids were eager to discuss the hot topics of the day and some kids didn't want to touch the hot topics of the day uh, with with any extension ladder you could find. Mm. Well, that's okay. You're not going to learn all this stuff anyhow. Right. Un- unless you're just totally obsessed with it. So let's figure out what's going to work for you because what I want you to do is I do want you to know some stuff, but I want you to walk away from the saying, hmm, history, interesting set of tools. Hmm, let's see what else I can do with it. Because I, f- I felt and still feel that if we can engender that reaction, then that young person is going to come back sooner or later and say, oh, yeah, I remember. Hey, let's see what I can do with that. Then we've done our job. Okay. How that's, is, that's how I see it. How has your approach changed, if at all, since the 70s? I have a greater store of data from which to draw because of the reading. And I can make... Um, connections between pieces of information that 40 years ago I wouldn't have made because I didn't possess as broad a store of knowledge. Okay. And I've had more practice. Uh, it, once again, I'll go back to the baseball analogy because that's a sport that you played. So when I'm, when I'm taking batting practice and I'm 10, I do certain things. By the time I'm 14, hopefully I've learned some new things. And then by the time I'm 18, I've learned some new things. And so if you look at the 10-year-old and the 18-year-old, how they take batting practice, what they know, what they knew, what they know in terms of using the bat, the kinds of pitches, all of the things that go into hitting the ball, which is still to me a pretty amazing thing. Mm. You, you take a chunk of wood and then somebody throws a ball at you and you hit it someplace. And if you're good, you actually mean to hit it there, which is pretty amazing. Um Teaching is a lot like that. So now, when I'm running a class, I have a full-scale lesson plan, and then I completely freelance off of it. Mm. I mean, I got it right there. Right. And occasionally I might look at it, but I write out the lesson plan so that that's here, and then I do everything else freelance. In the 70s, I, I couldn't freelance as much because I didn't have the practice. Did you enjoy teaching more later in your career than you did early in the career? No, it was just different. Mm, okay. I, and I was dealing with different topics and different age groups. And I've had lots of people say, well, you must have really enjoyed moving up to the high school. And I said, no. First of all, it's not a move up. You're talking about, you're talking about kids at very different stages of their development. And they're all equally challenging. And they all have wonderful attributes. And then they all have attributes you frankly would like to do without. As a father of three, I know you've been through that experience. Um, so I, I don't see it that way at all. The only exception, Paul, I think I would make to that. Um, some years ago, I created a new course for St. Christopher's called 9-11 to Now. Mm. Uh, and we felt 
um, that our students post 9-11 didn't really know anything, and they probably really should. Not just about the day, but what that meant for our country and so forth. So, so we created it out of nothing. Uh, we looked around the country. We found some colleges with bits and pieces. We found nothing at the secondary level at all that was worthwhile. So we just created it out of whole cloth. And we were so lucky that the first group of students we had take that course as seniors was one of the most talented, adept, enthusiastic senior classes in terms of humanities mm. that we've ever had. And we, we had our fair share of math science guys in those days. Um, but humanities usually was a, was a smaller core group and the math sciences was larger, which often would make sense. These guys were off the charts. And um, do you remember Jerry Tarkanian, the basketball coach Absolutely. at UNLV? And a lot of people said, well, the only thing Tark does at basketball practice with the guys he's got and the system he's runs, he rolls the ball out on the floor and then 35 minutes later, he blows his whistle and tells him to stop. Those guys, this is the only time it's ever happened in my career, those guys were so engaged and involved with what we were asking them to do that most of the classes, not everyone, but most of the classes, I'd start with a prompt. I'd say, so last night you read part of chapter five. Love you to start telling me about thus and such. And then 45 minutes later, the bell would ring and they'd go on their way. Mm. And, and I'd guide the convert. I didn't have to do anything. They would just, they would just go. And they wanted to know more and they wanted to learn. And, it's, and it just happened day after day after day. And that, that, that's unusual for high school kids. Was that enjoyable? Oh, it's fabulous. Be because I, on the one hand, I wasn't doing a thing. Well, I like that. On the other hand, um, I, I, w I, was, I felt as if I was like the conductor. Ah, well, we, we need a little bit more from the wind section. Mm. John, we haven't heard from you yet today. Jump into the conversation. Tell us a little something about that. Or Stanley, that was a great point. Somebody else jump on that and think about what Stanley just said in terms of this topic. That's what I mean by conducting. And they were building on each other. And they were, and what was great about that was that they had to listen to one another. First of all, they had to know stuff, which means they were doing their homework. Number two, they had to listen to each other and actually take it in. And thirdly, well, I respect what you just said, so, so I'll add this and then I'll add this. That doesn't happen very often. I've never been in a class like that. That, that just doesn't happen very often. No. And though that particular group of students that was something that really worked for them. And you just don't see that very often. So that would be the one exception to what I told you before yeah. about was it more fun here or was it more... That was just like, whoa. What year was that? Ish. Uh, they are the class of 2011. Okay. Yeah. Whew. Do you know what those guys are doing now, some of those? Uh, a lot of them are in international studies, uh, uh, international finance, uh, one of them, if I recall correctly, is working with Homeland Security. Mm. Uh, a lot of them went that route, which would reflect the fact that they were just interested. Yeah, that's That was cool. something that spoke to them. Yeah, that's great. All right, when I was at St. Christopher's, it was all boys, and uh, I think I had one or two classes at uh, our sister school, and, and maybe I had one or two classes my entire five years there that had 
two or three uh, young ladies in the class. Is it different now? Are there, are there a lot more uh, co-ed classes? I, I will answer your question by saying yes and no. Yes, pre-pandemic. Mm. Uh, I think the arenas in which we have the greatest amount of um, mingling, uh, world languages, we get a lot there. We get a lot in the arts. Uh, and then we get we get some in some of the higher level mathematics when you start going into the AP calculus realm. And then all of the English courses for seniors are semester electives and boys and girls can pick. Now, depending on the year, there are times when you'll see the boys lean pretty heavily on the St. Christopher's offerings and the girls on the St. Catherine's offerings. The opportunity is definitely there. Um, pandemic? Just just for, for health reasons, transportation reasons. Here's, here's the simplest explanation. So you go back to 2020, 2021. We don't want to put any kids on buses anymore than we have to. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. There you go. Done. I think we walked. You guys, you guys walked, or you drove. Uh, we did drive as well. Yes, so. and and the neighbors uh, eventually carried the day and said we've had it with high school seniors driving, which I do understand. No, I understand. Yeah, and I can't tell you when we started doing busing exclusively, but it's been a while. Yeah. And both schools have a fleet of buses and. What's great about uh, single-sex education for like an eighth, eighth or ninth grade boy, and, and what, what are the drawbacks? So the great part about single-sex for an eighth or ninth grade boy is that, generally speaking, he is going to be behind girls in emotional maturity, social maturity, and perhaps most importantly in a school setting, intellectual maturity. And it depends on the boy, and obviously it's not true for all of them. But very often, it's a year and a half, two years. That's a lot. Yeah. And so consequently, we go back to your earlier question about meeting the needs of each student. That's when, when you're teaching eighth or ninth graders, who even on a good day are a squirrely bunch. They just are. They absolutely That's are. who they are. And now you've, now you've got an intellectual uh, maturity range of three, four, five years sitting in the same classroom. Good luck with that. Right. And, and it's a disservice to the boys, in my opinion. It's also a disservice to the girls because they're ready to do other stuff and the guys just aren't ready to go there. Right. They just aren't. Um, disadvantages, uh, let's look at society today. We still struggle with gender inequality. That's a fact of life in our culture. And the separation does not help us get at those issues of inequality. Is there an answer that addresses... Uh, that's a great question. If there is, that it is not an answer that we are likely to provide, although we do far more now than we used to in terms of saying, you know, guys, by the way, there, there is something called gender inequality. Or, for example, um, we had a guest speaker in chapel this morning for the high school. And the speaker is, uh, was a young woman who is now 25, 
graduated from St. Catharines in 2015. And she came in specifically to speak with the boys about, here's some things you need to pay attention to. And she, and she talked about women, and she talked about how women, in her experience, boys school, girls school, and men are different. And she talked about some of the things in her personal experience, because she took a lot of classes at St. Christopher's. She said, here are some things I've observed that young men have a tendency not to pay attention to and that they have a tendency to think is, is not particularly important. Well, I'm here to tell you it really is. And you need to be intentional about this. Mm. And you need to start paying attention to this. Um, partly that's the right thing to do. Partly because when you don't, you should be thinking about your sisters and your moms and your aunts and your grandmothers and very possibly later on in life your daughters. Because if you're doing this now, then they're probably going through that too or they're gonna go through that in the future. And if that doesn't matter to you, then, then there's something wrong with you. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a great message, which I think when, when you were at St. Christopher's, I don't think we did a whole lot of that. I don't remember any of that. No. Um, and, and in those times, we, we just frankly didn't think about that. So I'm glad that we are thinking about that today. Now, how much of an answer is that? But it certainly beats the heck out of not having a guest speaker. Yeah, you're, you're trying. Yeah, and but is that the answer? I don't think so. I think that's a I think that's a more systemic cultural issue, and I frankly think that if there's an answer, really an answer, it's household by household. Mm. How do we raise our children? Yeah. Um, and and then my my final digression on this. So I learned that lesson when I was a small boy. My mother was born in Budapest, Hungary in 1914, just before World War I. Mm. Uh, she and her family became political refugees in 1919 because there was a Bol Bolshevik revolution in Hungary as well as in Russia. Which nobody knows about, right? Yeah, which nobody yeah. knows about, and I get that. And her family was professionals, attorneys, physicians, etc. And as a five-year-old, she told me about remembering seeing her uncles swinging from lampposts and trees. Mm. So they fled. And they went to Vienna first. And then her father, who was a physician, came to the United States and um, a few years later had enough money to bring everybody over to New York City. So she arrived as an immigrant at Ellis Island in 1926. She spoke Hungarian and she spoke German. Mm. Didn't speak any English at all. In 1932, she was accepted as a first-year student at Cornell. Oh, bad. And in 1936, she was accepted as one of four women in a class of 100 to Yale Medical School. Holy cow. Now, the point of all of that, yeah. other than the fact that, okay, mom was a heck of a lot smarter than son. <laughs> uh, mom, but, mom sounded pretty bright. Yeah, yeah. she was pretty bright. Um, but beyond that, my mom would tell me stories about how a lot of the men in her medical school class not only made it clear that she shouldn't be there, they actually worked actively to sabotage her mm. in terms of being able to complete the course of study and get her MD. And as soon as I heard that, that, that changed, not, not that I'm perfect or anything like that, but that definitely had an impact on me as I started to think about the relationship between men and women and my mother and father god love them 
Um, they were married for 56 years, and they had this beautiful relationship. Um, and if anybody was in charge, it was my mom. Right. And my father was very happy to say, no, your mother will tell me what the decision <laughs> is. So it was, a, it was a very different household from some others. And so as I became an adult and, and came into these school situations, I guess I can say I had an advantage because my upbringing was a little different. Right. That's a fantastic upbringing. Yeah. Having a powerful mom like that. Yeah, having a really powerful mom who was treated unfairly and for no reason other than the fact that she happened to be female. Right. And and even I as a boy could go like, okay, that makes no sense. None. At all. None. Yeah. Yeah, it's a cultural norm, I guess. And I, I it's maybe a power play as well, right? If I'm only competing against men, I don't have to worry about competing against a larger set. Maybe it's subconscious, maybe it's conscious. Uh, I, or, or some of each, possibly. Yeah. yeah. Bizarre. It's it's very bizarre. All right, let's 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 transition to what will you do post-retirement? Already started. Not going to let the door hit me in the you-know-what on the way out. <laughs> So um, starting about 15, 16 years ago, I uh, was asked to uh, join the upper school chaplain at the time, uh, Melissa Hollerith, and take nine seniors on a trip to New Orleans post-Katrina. Wow, okay. She, uh, she was born in Baton Rouge and went to Tulane. So this, this spoke to her. Um, and. And I can tell you that I was thoroughly unprepared for, for what we experienced in that week in New Orleans. But in answer to your question, one of the things that happened as the result of that trip is that I said, okay, this feels right to me. There's the theme. Right. And I said, I got to do more of this. And so ever since then... Oh, it really started then. Yeah, it, it, that was... I had done service work before... But this was the first time where I made the conscious decision to say, oh, oh no, you need to do this. You have an obligation here and you must fulfill it. Um, so since then, uh, I've done lots of service work in the Metro Richmond area, as I should. Continue to do that and will continue to do that. I'm working with a number of nonprofits already. Uh, I've worked in New Orleans. I've worked in Appalachia. I'm currently engaged in a service partnership with a an Episcopal mission, it means a really small Episcopal church with no money, that is attempting to meet the needs of the Navajo community in Utah. Mm. And I'm starting to reach out and make connections. Uh, I'm hoping to join a local civic association that wants to start a community garden because their neighborhood is a food desert. Right. Uh, and then I think, Paul, the, the other thing that I would say is, and I, and I just spent money on this today and talked with attorneys, uh, I'm in the process of creating a nonprofit, and my goal is to use that to make connections between um, neighborhoods and folks in need and nonprofits and foundations that have money. And it's the, like, how do we make that connection? so that funding can go to places that really need it, but at the same time ensure that the funding is used in the way that it should be used to satisfy the needs of the foundations. It's fantastic. So that, that hopefully gives you a sense of, of where I'm headed. And I have zero idea whether this is going to work or not. And the beauty of it is, I don't care. Yeah, you're going to try. We're, we're going to give it a rip and we're going to see what happens. And every time it works, bonus city. 
What is it about serving others? Because as a teacher, you've been serving young minds uh, for 48 years, and then you have plans to spend your remaining days on this. However long I can. Yeah. Right. What what is it about service that... uh, So so it's two things. Um, One is that when the time comes that I can no longer do this, and I'm assuming that will happen at some point. I'm 70, so... Um, what I don't want to be doing is sitting on the rocker on the front front porch having regrets. I don't want any regrets. I just don't. That's very powerful for me. And then the second one is the answer that will surprise you. Well, it just feels right to me. Mm. The instincts say, yes, you, you will do this. Okay, let's go. And I've done enough service work. Uh, I've also worked overseas. I've worked in Cuba, Haiti. Tanzania. Um, so I've got a breadth of experience in terms of the actual service that some other people have, but not a lot. And so I understand some things about how service works that other people don't. And that's part of the idea behind the the nonprofit. So I bring some skill sets to the table, and then I put those in conjunction with the folks what got the money and the folks what got the need. And let's see if we can't create a triangle here that, that really can work. And some of those triangles exist, but they probably are the, the exception more than they are the rule. I well, think. I don't know what, you know, Paul, to be honest with you, I don't know. I'm sure they do. What I do know is that just here in Richmond, the, the breadth of needs is, is so um, uh, overwhelming that you can't have too many people trying to figure out those connections. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, that's the way I see it. But I certainly don't think for a moment, well, gee, Andy, you came up with an idea that nobody ever had before. No, not hardly. It's just I think I can do it in some ways that could be of real benefit to folks. And for those who are willing to donate the funds, they can say, you know what? We're, we're putting our money to really good use. And to me, then, that's a win-win-win. Uh, and then the other thing I will say, and this will be my only political rant for the evening, thankfully. Um, to me, this is the kind of thing that we as a society need to be doing. If you want to have that conversation where, Paul, you take a position and you, you make it clear in a loud voice that this is what you believe, and then I adopt uh, a, a, an opposing opinion and I proclaim it in a loud voice. Yeah, so. Right. People are still hungry. It's done nothing. People don't have access to health care. They don't have any access to affordable housing. So what was the point of our conversation? There was no point. There, there was no point. And my feeling is if I can serve and also help with the connections, then at least I'm doing something that helps us move forward. Because the political rhetoric for me, that's a total waste of time. Complete waste of time. And, and I don't care your affiliation, your label. It, I don't care. I, I really am thoroughly disinterested. And I hope that the day will come soon when more and more of us will say, yeah, you know, I'm not really interested in that. I, I'd love a world where none of us were interested yeah. in, in that. Well, but we do have to be somewhat realistic. Sure. <laughs> sure. You, you and I will not uh, realize a utopia. Uh, I think probably not. Yeah. All right. We're a little past an hour. I want to hit a couple things kind of quickly because I, I know we had talked about doing the Sure, doing because we want to make sure it fits in your time frame. Yeah, it's perfect. Uh, travel. Favorite place you've ever been to? Wow. Wow. That's you, can get, you can give me two or three if you want. 
Okay, I'll give you two. Okay. Lucerne, Switzerland. Mm. Once again, can't necessarily articulate. Could never afford to live there. It sounds like a very expensive place. It's so, but but the the location of the city, nestled among the Alps and the mountain. I've always loved mountain lakes. I think it's probably that more mm. than anything else. And Lucerne is this sleek, clean. Uh, well, I think it's a vibrant city. I don't think they're very friendly. Mm. But my goodness, is it beautiful! <laughs> And I love mountains and I love lakes. So Lucerne. And then I think the other favorite place is where I'm working now. And it's it's a it's a village called Bluff, Utah. It's about 40 miles northwest of Four Corners, if that resonates with you. It does. Where the, where the four states come together. I've been it there. Is, yeah. it not, is, not to Bluff, but the Four Corners. It's, yeah. It is very remote. It is in the middle of what I refer to as Red Rock Country, and and it is it is the place where this Episcopal mission is located. And every time I set foot on that campus, um, that location quite literally sings to me. Mm. I can hear it. So if that means I'm schizophrenic, fair enough. But you're enjoying it. But I'm enjo- I'm a happy <laughs> schizophrenic. Um, and I would say those are my two favorite places. Uh, that part of the country is gorgeous. It's just gorgeous yeah if people haven't been there they need to go there. yeah i i would agree all right you were also quite musical uh and before we started recording you were saying you're you're learning the mandolin and the fiddle uh did you pick up other instruments along the way um uh remember what i said about the fencing you asked me well how did i get into that and i said my parents decided right well my parents decided when i was young that i should learn how to play the piano okay yeah well um they battled with me on that for about 18 months and and then I didn't learn the piano anymore, which, by the way, was my bad. I should have. So, no, no other instruments other than voice, but I have already started working so that when I retire, I am actually going to go buy an electronic keyboard, not a full-scale piano. Don't have the room, don't have the money. Right. But I'm going to buy an electronic keyboard, a good one, and I've already lined up somebody with whom I've worked in the past in choral music who's a piano teacher, and I'm going to learn how to play the piano just because. What is it about uh, this time in your life that has you wanting to learn the piano and be, do other be, instruments? Because what I don't want to do is be that person who kind of sits there waiting for something to happen. Mm. And the piano is going to be just because. It's not going to be part of a band. It's not because I'm going to be perform. And what I'm really hoping I'm going to be able to do, Paul, is I'll, I'll become good enough that I can play some of the simpler classical music pieces, uh, Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, because I love the sound of them. And wouldn't it be cool to produce the sound myself, sure. even if it's not great? And then if I get really lucky, I could also play some jazz piano. Oh. And and that would be just fabulous. What is jazz piano? So jazz piano is just jazz on the piano. Okay. And, there's, and any jazz composition... There's, there's a basic structure, and then there's all the improvisation off the structure. And and it's kind of like the teaching. you got to know some stuff. Right. You know, people say, oh, you don't really need to know any facts. I say, oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> and then you got to be able to do something with them. And the piano in jazz, 
You, you do have to be able to play whatever the basic structure is, and then you have to understand the music well enough to be able to improvise in ways that actually fit with the basic structure. Mm. And I, that's what I love about jazz, is listening to professional musicians, and they play off of each other, but they never lose the basic structure. And it's really, if you're good at it, it's like, wow, that was fabulous. So I'll never be that good. That's fine. But what a great way to spend an hour a day. Right. And I got to figure it, it can't hurt the old brain box either. It, it absolutely helps. Yeah. So. All right, cool. I, I, we have a question we ask most of our guests. Sure. It's meant to be uh, a little bit thought-provoking for you, but more to, to tell a little bit more about who you are and your personality. Okay. You're a talk show host. You get to invite three folks, a male, a female, and someone uh, musical. Could be an uh, individual musician, could be a group. Okay. Uh, who are you bringing on your talk show? They can be alive or dead. They can be doesn't, famous, not famous. Doesn't be, matter, right? Yeah, it's it just be the, any, any, literally anybody. So the musician is the easiest one. Keith Jarrett, hmm. who is a jazz pianist. Okay. Uh, Mr. Jarrett is now in his 70s, might even be pushing 80. It's terrible arthritis in his hands, so he doesn't perform much anymore. But he was one of the most important influences on me as a young adult in the early 70s and I listened to him on LPs playing concerts around the world and most of it was solo piano fabulous so that's easy Keecher I want him in the mix okay um male I have to say Abraham Lincoln okay because how did you figure that out and where do those guts come from oh my goodness just all of it. And I think just about the people he selected to be part of his cabinet, most of whom either didn't like him or thought he was a, a yokel, and half of whom wanted to be president and would do anything. And he he made I, it work. How did you make that work? That I, That's never ceased to amaze me. Women. So many wonderful choices. Okay. I'm going to be a, a, a little... A little cheeky here. Okay. Janine Girardin, who was my 11th grade French teacher. Okay. Uh, she was worldly. She was funny. She was earthy, as only Parisians can be. And I desperately wanted to know who she was as a person and, of course, could never learn. And she was as independent and freestanding a human being as anybody I've ever met. Yeah. Yeah, and she stayed with you all these years. Well, yeah, because it's over 50 years later. Yeah. Wow. And I still remember her very well. Yeah. That's fantastic. So those would be my choices. Okay. That's wonderful. All right. A peer and a student that you remember fondly. And we'll, that will be the final. Okay. So I'll start with the student who is, <laughs> uh, he is now living in Vermont. Uh, he is happily married. He has four children. And I don't think he's 60 yet, but he's closing in on it. And you actually, you so you came in 82. Mm -hmm. You would actually have been at St. Christopher's at the same time. Do you remember Trip Davis? I remember the name. Yeah, so so trip. I, I had trip for um, eighth grade. I think history, not English. Basketball. 
and eventually he, he found his way over to soccer. Mm. And um, he was chairman of the Honor Council. Tripp turned himself into an all-prep soccer player with no background, no previous experience, but, but he was so focused, so committed, he made this incredible jump. And then his life since then, which has been in large measure entrepreneurial, mm. um, this is a guy who has always paid attention to where he's going and has been really thoughtful about how he gets there. And I just think about that whole package career from the time I first met him when he was like 12 or 13 years old. And now here he is pushing 60. And he's had this immensely successful life, both in terms of his career, but also as a husband, as a father. I mean, it's really pretty spectacular. Sounds like an impressive guy and a, yeah. and a good guy to know. Yeah, great, great guy. Class of 86. Okay. Up here. Trip Davis, class of 86. Yeah, he was only a year behind me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he didn't play baseball. Okay. I don't think we played any sports together. I don't think you played any sports together. I just, I think by that time he'd shifted away from some of the sports that, that you played. Uh, hmm, Pierre. Wow, that year. You can name two if it's easier. Well, yeah, it's, it's, that, that's, that's hard. Can can I can I name a mentor? Absolutely. Okay. So, in the late '80s, I ran across a professor at VCU. His name uh, is Richard Vaca, and Dr. Vaca was a professor of school law, mm. relatively arcane subject in the overall. This guy was a dynamo in the classroom. When you went to his classes, and this was when VCU was still predominantly a commuter school, night school, you know, it was that. Right. Not not the undergraduate campus that it is today. And you'd walk into those 6.30 p.m. classes, and man, he would go and ramp you right up. He was just <laughs> so enthusiastic about it. He was fabulous. And as a result of taking one class with him, uh, I learned that I could get a doctorate at VCU and he could be my mentor and run me through the program. And I said, done. And it took me seven years and it was painful, but I got a doctorate in large measure because he was like this intellectual spark plug. And he was your mentor the entire time. And he was my mentor the entire time. He's fabulous. Wow. Absolutely fabulous. Is he still around? Don't know. Hmm. Um, he retired. Um he was living on the north side of the James, and then he moved to south side. And at some point, I think he was having so much fun being a grandparent that he just decided he wasn't paying attention to the old days. Yeah. Which is perfectly understandable. Sure. Um, okay, the other person I'll name uh, is a former colleague. She retired over 20 years ago, and her name is Lee Camp. I remember, you remember, Ms. remember Camp. Mrs. Camp. Yep. And, and Lee and I um, got to the point where we worked so well together that we started creating courses just for the fun of creating courses. <laughs> um, history electives, and in those days they were trimesters as opposed to semesters. And, and I've done a fair amount of team teaching, and it's been great, and I've loved it. But Lee was the most enjoyable, stimulating, um, 
team teacher to work with, and we would like make up stuff on the fly in the middle of class without actually planning because we kind of looked at each other. (laughs) Okay. So back to the sports analogy. Um, You've got a defense set up in baseball, and all of a sudden two infielders look at each other and go, yeah, no, we're going to change this. And then the ground ball gets hit to right to one of them, and it starts the double play that otherwise you wouldn't have been able to do. Right, right, right. It's it's that kind of instinctive relationship. And Lee and I did that for years. We taught a course in contemporary U.S. history. We taught a course in constitutional law, and I mean every every day was uh, every day was a show. And that's that's pretty rare. Yeah, and she was the only uh, female. Oh yeah, for years. Yeah, she did. She didn't. She didn't take no, no stuff off of nobody. Yeah, which I also kind of liked about her a lot. Yeah, absolutely. But it was a fabulous working relationship. And what I really appreciated was that we always worked as equals, and we always had that opportunity to um, to make decisions on the fly during the middle of of the class. And sometimes they didn't work. But more often than not, they did. And when they did work, it was And it was, it was when fun. they did, it was like, okay, that was really cool. What are we going to do tomorrow? <laughs> and when when you can come to work every day saying like, well, what are we going to do today? You, I think you're pretty darn lucky. All right. As a, as a man who's taught, you're finishing your 48th year teaching. I, I guess the final thing I should ask you is any uh, pearls of wisdom that you would love to impart to, to a 12-year-old or to an 80-year-old? Putting you on the spot a bit there. No, it's fine. So I would say two things, Paul. I would say, first of all, I've said previously that education is a people business. I actually believe that most businesses, human interactions, transact, it's a people business if you're doing it right. And whether you're 12 or 80, if you're actually paying attention to the people around you as you're doing whatever it is you're doing, then your world, and by extension, the world, will over time end up being a better place. Here's my example as a teacher, because that's very abstruse. So when I work with um, new faculty, uh, and I'm supposed to give them pearls of wisdom, which is kind of a humorous thought, uh, one of the things I say to them is, the first two weeks of any class, I would encourage you to do what I make a point to do, and that is pay attention to your students and make sure that by the end of two weeks, you know at least one thing about every single one of your students that has absolutely nothing to do with your class. And from that, from that effort, many wonderful things will flow. Because they come into your class and they go, Oh, like he's actually paying attention. Okay, I'm not really interested in that, but he's paying attention, so I'll try. Right. Or, yeah, this is kind of risky. I might get this wrong. But he's paying attention, so I'll give it a try. And I don't think that's just education. That, yeah. that would be my pearl of wisdom. And 12-year-olds can do it. Absolutely. They don't want to very often, but they can. And sometimes they can do it better than adults. So that would be my one, if everybody were to do one thing, this is the thing that I would encourage them to do. Fantastic. Andy, thank you so much for uh, coming here. It's about a 25, 30-minute drive. I appreciate you driving out to 
Yeah, well, now I got to turn on the headlights and figure out how to get home in the dark. It's not. Don't don't worry, Paul. I left breadcrumbs. I'm all set. <laughs> thank you so much, and, and uh, my pleasure. Thank you for uh, a wonderful 48 year career teaching. Well, thank you. I appreciate. And that. I also appreciate everything you're going to do after retirement. Well, I'm looking forward to it. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.